0: We had our editorial board endorsement interview Wednesday with Lee Weingard and Chris Ronain for Cuyahoga County Executive, and it was fiery. If you're trying to decide who to vote for, you ought to watch this and see it. We'll be putting it all up on Sunday on Cleveland.com. Very good conversation, very distinct choices that you'll see. It's today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with Lisa Garvin. Laura Johnston and Layla Tassi. Lisa and Layla, you were involved in that conversation yesterday without giving anything away. Do you, was my description of it accurate?
1: <laughs> yes, it was hot, right? Yeah. I mean... Yeah.
0: <laughs> it was good. I, it was civil, but it was... The, the, the pointed, what, yes. Yeah. And and look, they, they're they two different guys. They come at it with two different management styles. They have different positions that they articulate quite clearly. Uh, and because of our format, which I love our format, you know, we police it a little bit. We throw the flag when there's stuff that we know is kind of bogus and they talk to each other while we ask provocative questions. It works pretty well. I had I had uh, written a column a couple weeks ago suggesting we might try and set up a debate between these two where they ask each other the questions, which everybody came back and said, please do it, please do it. We're not having much luck finding a venue for that. This wasn't that, but man, it was close. This was this was good. I think anybody that's going to vote would be worth giving up 90 minutes to watch it. It was good stuff.
1: Yeah, they really they challenged each other in a way that was very, very worth watching. I mean, uh, I would say of of all the endorsement interviews that, that we've participated in, this is this was one of the best. Mm
0: hmm. It was fun. I mean, how often do you get to say that? We sit through some of these where it's like, man, these candidates are terrible. They have no spark. And you can't say that about this. They both came to the game and uh, played well. Yeah. Let's begin. Why is Ohio's Congressman Jim Jordan trying to change how fentanyl is classified for law enforcement purposes? Lisa, what struck me about this story is it's just so odd. With all the issues in the land, what is Jim Jordan doing picking this one?
2: I think he's trying to split hairs here. And Jordan has, is saying that if Republicans retake the House and he becomes the House Judiciary Committee chair, he will seek permanent Schedule One classification of fentanyl. This current classification expires on December 31st. It was made a Schedule One drug back in 2018, and they've constantly renewed it since then. And it sounds like a you know like a logical thing. He sent a letter to the DEA administrator, Ann Milgram. He says he wants information on how this temporary classification has or has not helped stem the opioid crisis. But the Biden administration, they're okay with making fentanyl-related substances permanent Schedule One drugs, but they're kind of Saying well, not fentanyl-related compounds that are scheduled by class. Um, so I'm 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 trying to parse this. But so what they want to do? Some fentanyl-related compounds have very small amounts of fentanyl, and so they're afraid that the mandatory minimum penalties, you know, you know, that would be put on all Schedule One fentanyl drugs would, you know, um, affect people they say that there would be racial disparities they they said they would exclude any cases with direct links to death or injury but others they fear that you know it would result in excessive sentencing especially for people of color who only have trace amounts of fentanyl but Jordan's calls that argument unconvincing.
0: I I don't understand why he's picked this issue we talk about Jordan all the time because he's the big Trump sycophant and he's always pushing the the ridiculous Trumpiest of Trump claims. What's this about? Why is he doing this?
2: I think that he's, you know, he wants to look like the law and order guy. You know, if he's going to head up the Judiciary Committee, he's like, he calls it a cynical bargaining tool to reduce or remove penalties for drug dealers. So he's basically parroting the line of oh, we're letting criminals out onto the streets. I think that that's the narrative he's trying to strike here.
0: Okay. So maybe it's part of his idea for how he hunted the judicial committee. If the Republicans retake the house, strange one, you're listening to today in Ohio. So Laura, let me get this straight. I could be drunk as a skunk sitting behind the wheel of my car with my engine running. But if I'm asleep at the wheel and not moving, I can no longer be charged with driving under the influence. How did the Ohio Supreme court split the hair on this one?
3: Well, that's correct. To be driving under the influence, you have to be driving or operating the, the motor vehicle, which is the crux of this case that the judges had a weird split on and to the point where Jennifer Bruner was trotting out dictionary definitions of operating. In this. So this is a 4-3 ruling involving a case in which a Hamilton County woman, she was previously convicted in a, of an OVI operating a vehicle while intoxicated. She was thrown out of a friend's house, found hours later by police sleeping in the driver's seat of the parked car with the engine run, running. So she's already got an OVI. Can she get uh, found of a violation of that OVI by operating a vehicle again uh, for driving under an OVI suspension, basically? And an appeals court overturned her conviction, saying there must be evidence that she moved the vehicle. And the majority said they agree with that, that Ohio law doesn't directly state whether that situation should be considered operating. So it's up to them. And they pulled out this dictionary definition. And uh, Justice Pat Fisher had a separate concurring position. And then there was a dissent where uh, Justice Sharon Kennedy and um, Maureen O'Connor were on the same side with my with um, Matt Dewine, which I was like, "Wow, you don't see those three together usually."
0: Although I, th- this is the kind of case I think that causes people to lose faith in the court system. If if I'm behind the wheel with the engine running, then then clearly I've been moving. I mean, remember when this happened to Zach Reed? He, he fell asleep at a stoplight. There's no way that anybody could say, "Yeah, he was drunk." He, Can I he got in? into a car that was I sitting at a to. stoplight and fell asleep. I mean, <laughs> I
3: think, well, I guess I don't know where she was sleeping, like where this was.
1: Well, here's say. the thing. No, they, they talk, though, about how there has to be evidence that someone was moving the car and someone asleep at the stoplight. There is clear evidence right. that they were yeah. moving the car. So yeah. under those circumstances, you would be found guilty, I'm sure, of operating the vehicle. If you're
3: parked in a parking lot that you were parked, yeah, or you might have gotten in the car.
1: Seat. That's where you put the car. You right. weren't driving it. Maybe you turned the car on, but you didn't go anywhere. I'm on the side of this opinion. I am
3: too, and I love the idea that I think Bruner wrote that if the definition of operate that if a child listens exactly to while sitting in the driver's seat of a car parked on a public road with the key in the ignition, would that child be guilty of operating a motor vehicle license without a valid license? Which, I mean.
1: No, of course not, right? right? Because when we say operating, we mean driving. And so we wouldn't, yeah, exactly. That's what sold me on this. I was like, that is exactly right. Although, you have should never you
3: let your kids sit in the front seat with. The no, of
1: course, running? yeah. No.
2: <laughs> but I, I no. will say this, as a faithful reader of the Sun Messenger blotter every Thursday, <laughs> is that I cannot tell you how many times people get arrested for falling asleep or being drunk at a stoplight. You know, I, it happens. Yeah. a lot.
1: But in that case, like like we said, right. you you were driving the car, and it's clear you were because how'd you get at the stoplight? Right. <laughs> but but if you are in the parking lot where you left the car when you went into the bar and you came out and that's where they found you you weren't driving it you didn't drive you know if you have your foot on the on the you know the the brake and you fall asleep and you lift your foot off that brake and you crash into a you know fence you drove it (laughs) (laughs) guilty so I agree I think this is you know I just wish that when they wrote the law they had contemplated the fact that you're good. The word operating is so murky. Just say what you mean when you, when you, you know, write legislation. <laughs> Don't just okay, leave it up to, to interpretation like this. Definitions of the yeah. Word
0: <laughs> Great points. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Has all the strange maneuvering to load the state school board with right wing activists started to have an effect on policymaking for Ohio education? How is the Ohio's school board proposing to jump into the political arena? in a big way, involving LGBTQ students. Wait, well, they're taking a position on something that hasn't even happened yet.
1: Yeah. Well, so the U.S. Department of Education has proposed this enhancement to Title IX protections for gay and transgender kids. But now we see a proposed resolution at the Ohio State Board of Education opposing that federal proposal and encouraging local schools to defy it. Mm -hmm. And this move is sparking accusations that it's simply political motivated and intended to just stir up these culture wars during election season at the expense of vulnerable kids. So so Title IX withholds federal funding from education programs practicing sex-based discrimination, and Biden's proposed rules would include sexual orientation and gender identity in that as well. Schools that violate Title IX could face federal funding cuts for programs that support everything from classroom instruction to free and reduced lunch programs. But this state school board resolution claims biological sex is not fluid or changeable, and if it passes, it would require the state superintendent of public instruction would have to they would have to send all schools that receive federal funds for instruction, um, free and reduced lunch and other programs a letter that says the new federal rules are without force, non-binding, and unenforceable. It would also urge local schools to not amend their policies and procedures to fall in line with that new rule. And it would throw support behind a lawsuit that Dave Yost and other attorneys general have filed against the Biden administration about all of this. The, res- the resolution also would, would back bills in the Ohio House and Senate that would ban transgender girls and women from playing girls in women's high school and college sports. And then, you know, I saved the best for last. The resolution would urge the Ohio General Assembly to pass laws to force schools to disclose to parents when their child asks for alternative names and pronouns to be used or questions their own their own gender identity. Seriously, this is what we're doing. Policing what names kids prefer to be called in school and how they feel about themselves. I mean, anyway, it's all terrible, but that part really stood out to me.
0: But if you defy, if this becomes a rule and you defy it, you're going to lose your money. You, you know, you can't defy these rules and keep getting the, the title, whatever, funding. Well, that's, so,
1: that's what's a head-scratcher to me, because how is it that this resolution just declares that, you know, the federal rules are unenforceable and non-binding? I, I just don't get that. They want to pump out these letters to to schools saying, don't worry about it. You know, we got your back, and you just go ahead and defy them. Yeah, they are but- going to lose their funding if if that Biden uh, rule comes to pass.
0: They, look, let's face it. The other thing is, this is not what the school board's for. This is not what the state school board is supposed to be doing. They're supposed to be looking at curricula. They're supposed to be looking at educational standards. But as we know from the past year, they the, the people that are focused on education have been replaced by kind of wingnuts. And so they now are immersing themselves in political nonsense. These are Mike DeWine's appointments that are doing this. Remember, they appointed somebody to be the state superintendent in spite of all evidence that he had a gigantic conflict of interest, which our reporter, Laura Hancock had repeatedly proven. And then he's not in the job, what a week before they realize, Oh, this is bad. This is actually a crime that will be investigated. And he quits. And the, the school board looks ridiculous for having proceeded. Anyway, these people are bad news. I, we should probably start looking at, some kind of constitutional amendment on how we fill this school board. There's too many appointments and too little of the the voters will.
1: Yes. And I mean, politicizing issues like this is so reprehensible. I mean, advocates for the trans community say there's a direct correlation between anti trans legislation and the bullying that trans youth experience mm-hmm. at school. And I really believe that. I mean, even just entertaining this legis- this resolution has that effect of emboldening transphobia. Uh, how how, you know, just so awful.
0: Right. And, and it doesn't have anything to do with what's going on in the classroom. And they'll they'll do it. we're right. gonna show you what's going on in the classroom come Monday. We got a massive project going on that's about education. It's what these people should be focused on. Laura.
1: Exactly.
3: Oh, I just I don't think that this has a role in telling my school district what they should be doing mm-hmm. at all.
0: Yeah. yeah, it's bad news. It's today in Ohio. Okay, Lisa, can women suddenly get abortions in Ohio, at least for a while? This is a surprise move that opens a window. It
2: really is. And I bet there are a lot of women scrambling for appointments right now. Hamilton County Common Police Court Judge Christian Jenkins granted a temporary restraining order to plaintiffs that halts enforcement of that six-week fetal heartbeat bill for 14 days. So now in Ohio, abortions are legal for up to 22 weeks of pregnancy. That is the previous Ohio law. And during this time, doctors and clinics cannot be prosecuted, for you know, doing anything during these fourteen days, but they're also seeking a, a longer, a, like a preliminary injunction that would extend it uh, well out, like past six weeks, I believe. So yeah, they're they're asking Jenkins for a preliminary injunction for the entire duration of the case, actually, until all the constitutional issues are resolved. Remember that uh, they first, the plaintiffs, which are abortion providers across Ohio, represented by the ACLU, they went to the Ohio Supreme Court saying, hey, we want a ruling on the constitutionality of the fetal heartbeat law. They were taking too long. They took their case to Hamilton County Judge Christian Jenkins. And because they were tired of waiting, they said people were being harmed during this. So Jenkins considered several affidavit cases of Ohio patients that were turned away during this fetal heartbeat law being in effect. It included a woman with a wanted pregnancy but had a a fetus with severe anomalies, two cancer patients who were denied chemotherapy treatment because they were pregnant, several ectopic pregnancies, despite that being a medical exemption for women's health, they were still being turned away. so um, the state fought back. They said that affected Ohio women should have participated in the case. But Judge Jenkins says, well, that's a pretty dubious argument. They're already under extreme distress. They don't have a time to get a lawyer and take this thing to court. So, yeah, this is interesting. So for 14. But haven't we had Ohio clinics close since the fetal heartbeat law right. went to effect? So,
0: yeah, it's I don't I don't know how much of an effect it'll have. Plus, let's face it. Dave Yost will immediately appeal this to an appellate court and whatever they rule, it'll get appealed to the Ohio Supreme Court, which is where this case was sitting, languishing a separate case with no decision. So it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. But if they go to an appellate court and they stop it, then all the women that might be rushing to get appointments are going to get whipsawed. This is the state of abortion rulings today. Uh, Again, you said they're seeking the injunction for the life of the case Mm -hmm. until the issues are decided. It'll be interesting to see what ultimately... The Ohio Supreme Court does with that when it reaches it, which seems fairly inevitable.
2: And of course, the Ohio right to life weighed in on this. Mike Gonadakis accuses the plaintiffs of judge shopping for a favorable outcome and pointing to the original suit with the Ohio Supreme Court. But we know why they didn't do that. And he also said there's no evidence that the heartbeat law is bad and Ohio will become an abortion free state in the near future.
0: Yeah, it's uh, a. Long road to the end of this story. It's today in Ohio. St. Vincent Charity Hospital has been a mainstay of care in Cleveland since the Civil War era, most recently providing much-needed indigent care in one of Cleveland's impoverished neighborhoods. Why is the hospital all but closing down in November, Laura?
3: This is a familiar refrain in the healthcare landscape of Cleveland. We've seen a couple of hospitals close in the last couple of months, but there are fewer patients being admitted for hospital stays. There's a huge growth of outpatient and home healthcare, also telehealth. And apparently the lack of healthcare workers, which obviously has affected hospitals across the country, is not a big factor here. It's more just the future of healthcare and what they want to spend their, you know, put their focus on. And they've been losing money for more than a decade. I mean, millions of dollars every year and on their budgets. So they're going to keep their urgent care services. They're going to keep outpatient mental health services, addiction, treatment, and internal medicine and specialty clinics. There'll no longer be an ER downtown and no more of their 416 hospital beds. Those will be gone. There's actually a plan for a health campus more aligned with the needs of the community that focuses on the social determinants of health. That plan came out uh I think last year and although we didn't know the hospital was going to be closing as part of it.
0: Yeah. And look, it's another we we talked recently about university hospitals closing down, all but closing down two facilities in some of the suburbs that are not as wealthy as others.
3: Yeah, Bedford it, this, and Richmond Heights. Well yeah, well adding on to Ahuja. In one. exactly,
0: and this is another shot at indigent care. It's going to make it harder for people of lesser means to get healthcare. St. Charity, St. Vincent Charity, has provided a really much-needed service forever, but they can't pay the bills. They've been. When was the last time they were operated in the black? Was it 2011?
3: I think it might be. I mean, mm-hmm. it is that long mm-hmm. ago, and they've been. They were founded in 1869. Think about that. And in 2010, they ended a decade of joint ventures venture with UH. So they've been under their own management, sole ownership by the Sisters of Charity Health System. And you're right; they focused on indigent care, and they did a lot with treatment and mental health and um, drugs and alcohol. That you know. Experts say other hospitals are going to have to step in and help here because this is not a need that's going away. It was one of the few 24-7 psychiatric emergency departments in all of Ohio.
0: Although Metro Health still serves the, the yeah. same community, Metro Health next month is opening a huge mental health hospital in Cleveland Heights along with its new campus. It's got a whole new hospital that they've built also opening next month. So there's still possibilities, but this is right in the heart of downtown right the others are not it's part of the winnowing the long predicted winnowing of the number of medical care facilities well, in the region. And
2: I, you know, because I worked for MD Anderson Cancer Center for 17 years and and saw how, you know, they expanded into the suburbs, you know, because they wanted to go to where patients were, and then everyone else did that, and then all of a sudden you had, you know, healthcare institutions less than a mile from each other. And I would argue that this is a pivoting of healthcare in general. I mean, it's, I think through the pandemic we saw a lot of the ways that, you know, we could serve the, without having hospital beds. I mean, St. Vincent's isn't going away. Neither is UH Bedford or Richmond Heights. They're just not having hospital beds. And I understand that's a problem, but there's, I think they're pivoting to serve the social determinants of health, as Laura mentioned.
3: Right. I agree. And you're right. Healthcare is, it's more comfortable for a lot of patients. It's cheaper. It's the future, right? So they're trying to get ahead of that. But to your other point, I remember when, It was UH and Metro Health. They both put up brand new, gleaming, shiny buildings at the seventy seven eighty two interchange. One's in Rexville, one's in Broadview Heights. You're on the highway and you see them both and you're like, Did we need this? Like, really?
0: (laughs) Okay, you're listening to today in Ohio. Does a single shred of evidence exist to prop up the seemingly preposterous claim Tuesday at a Cuyahoga County Council meeting that the estimated cost of the jail has jumped from $500 million or $550 million to $700 million? Is this more likely part of a phony campaign for urgency by those who are inexplicably rushing to lock in on a jail plan on a toxic site before the next county executive takes office? Layla? Both Chris Vernon and Lee Weingart are clear they will not build this jail on that toxic site, no matter what the county council does now. So it makes no sense that they're rushing, but now we have, oh, it's now $700 million because you laggards are waiting too long.
1: Right. Any I mean, truth
0: to that at all?
1: Well, yeah, this is exactly how I felt about it when I saw this story come across. During this council meeting, um, On the they were talking about the proposed land purchase for the jail, sales tax increase, and all the other jail-related plans, and the county's jail consultant, Jeff Applebaum, dumps on them that their prior estimate from 2020, that the new jail would cost, as you said, $550 million, is now outdated and that the costs have ballooned to anywhere between 700 and $750 million, depending on how many inmates they plan on accommodating at that site. And he said he arrived at that new estimate by considering construction industry data, That shows the increases in construction costs since late 2020 were between 27 percent and 33 percent. But of course, it's not lost on us that this new price tag comes as the pressure is mounting in the community to put this new jail plan on ice until after the new county executive takes office in just a few months. I mean, could this be an attempt at counterpressuring counsel with the threat of ever increasing costs and the risk that if they wait any longer, the expense is only going to continue to rise. I mean, Applebaum's literal words were at every single steering committee meeting, the one refrain was every month of delay in implementation has increased costs. So yeah, I think that this was an attempt to pressure council and to feel like tick, 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 you know, we're losing time. Time is money.
0: Yeah, it, it's it's thrown the flag. But but here's the thing. The jail cost is not determined by the jail. The jail cost is determined by the government. They look at the money they have available and they design a jail that's within the budget. It's not some, well, it's it's, it's you got to build this model. It has to be this. It's like what they did with the MedMart. We talked yesterday about how oh, they're flushing $50 million down the drain on that. They didn't have to spend $50 million on that. They could have gone with a $20 million plan or a $10 million plan. It's their decision. So for him to say, oh, oh, jail, it's going to cost three quarters of a billion dollars now because you're being slow- you would have wished that somebody at the table would have said, "Hey, Mr. Applebaum, you're not telling us how much it costs. We'll tell you how much we're going to spend on it, and let's design a jail that fits our budget."
3: Can, can I just add in here like there is we don't even have a site yet. How do you know what kind of jail you're going to build if you don't know what the site is? And of, of course things are getting more expensive. Like you'd have to be an idiot to think that that the number was going to stay the same. But I still feel like they're pulling numbers out of thin air like it's just a super even number like we'll just make it 750 i mean we don't know where we're building it let's say 1.5 billion billion. i mean they don't mean any these numbers don't mean anything let me
1: let me to your point laura about how they don't have a site well they think they have a site but okay an extra $200 million. But how much of that would have to be spent on mitigating the environmental and health hazards <laughs> on the site they plan to yeah, hide Yeah, there's in. no price tag on they that, right? They talked That's at all included. about the cost of that, and I'm sure it won't be cheap. So how much of that money could they save by not building the jail on Chernobyl?
0: Well, this gets back to <laughs> a question I'm being asked with increasing frequency by our readers. This makes so Little sense. I mean, there is just no justification for what they're doing. So people are asking, who's profiting from this? What, the, the only reason to move forward with such a preposterous plan is if somebody's profiting. Who is it? And we're going to keep asking those questions. Whatever happens, I, I I pretty much can guarantee you this jail will not be built on that site. Because Ronan and Weingart won't build it there, and they're going to be the county executive. Michael Malley's the prosecutor; he's dead set against this. He's got the power of the law where he could mess with them. So it's not going to happen. It is absolutely not going to happen. Why are they rushing to do it then, when they know it won't happen? What is the per- who is the person that profits? by getting this done now, only to have it undone later. That's the key question. And where are the county council members like Jack Schron who claim to represent the taxpayer? Because this is folly and not one of them is speaking up to say, no, 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 let's not be stupid here. Good question Today in Ohio. (laughs) How does an Orthodox Jewish man in University Heights say the mayor is persecuting him and violating his religious freedom with the use of private investigators and surveillance? Lisa, this is one of those lawsuits that kind of jump out at you. Is the mayor really doing this?
2: According to the lawsuit filed by University Heights resident Daniel Grand, he filed a federal lawsuit that accuses the city of University Heights and its mayor, Michael Dillon Brennan, of violating his civil and religious rights. So what happened was, is that, uh, you know, Orthodox Jews do not travel by car during the Shabbos, which starts at sunset Friday and then ends when the stars come out on Saturday. They have to pray three times a day, though. So Grand said, you know, that he would live maybe a mile from the synagogue. And he says, well, I'm walking back and forth three times a day. Let me have a prayer group in my home. So he did that. And I guess people got upset. You know, Um, the city ordered him, you know, they had a cease and desist order. They say that Grand needed a permit to operate a synagogue. He says, whoa, 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 I'm just having a prayer group here. He applied for that permit, but then he withdrew that request after 100 people joined a Zoom meeting of the City Planning Commission and they came out against him. So the lawsuit accuses Mayor Brennan of sending letters to opponents encouraging their attendance at this Zoom meeting. He retaliated with police patrols, stopping visitors to Grant's home and questioning them. And then the lawsuit alleges Brennan hired private investigators to spy on him. There were Unmarked SUVs parked outside his house. He also got cited for he put up a fabric screen between him and his neighbor because the neighbor pointed his surveillance camera at Grant's house. So he got cited for that. It was dismissed on appeal. But then the city retroactively denied approval for a fence that Grant had already erected. So this is like a litany of ills here. And then he uh, had a public records request back in June of 2021. He wanted all the emails that discussed him and his property. That request has still not been fulfilled.
0: It, 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 we'll have to wait and see how the city responds to this, but this is frightening. It's a fr- if, if what he's saying is true, it's a frightening abuse of city powers. I mean, surveilling his house uh, when he's trying to have a prayer meeting uh, is is going very far beyond. And it's strange because University Heights has a significant a huge Jewish community.
2: Orthodox. I see them walking on the streets all the time, yeah. you know, during the Shabbos. I, I
3: lived there and I don't remember there ever being a problem. I lived there for nine years.
0: i yeah, it's- we'll love to see what the city, how the city responds to this. So you would think that residents would be up in arms about it. It's today in Ohio. I think that does it for today. We had some technical difficulties, but I think we're going to leave the last question for tomorrow because we're at time. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Layla. Thank you, Laura. Thanks to everybody who listens. Come back on Friday. We'll wrap up the week.